Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to this. This is the last but one uh, in this series to celebrate uh, the 21st uh, anniversary of the Centre for Economic Performance. Uh, it's wonderful to have Orly here. Uh, he's a very old friend of the Centre. I think you're the oldest transatlantic friend of the Centre. Um, and uh, I think of you, I must say, as our guardian angel. Um, when Ollie first visited us, this is the previous incarnation of the centre, in 1976, we were real country bumpkins, and uh, Ollie took us in hand uh, and got us uh, uh, a part of the, the great world of, of uh, labour economics. Um, as you know, Ollie is the president of the American Economic Association. Um, he's uh, just recently given the presidential address, and he's going to give us uh, another version of it tonight. Um, he's also the best labour economist in the world, uh, and I think he's taught most of the other labour economists in the world, uh, certainly either uh, as a teacher or as a colleague or having us visit. I think an extraordinary number of people in our centre have visited uh, his centre in Princeton uh, over the years. Um, all he has this wonderful gift, which I, I actually think of as the greatest gift anybody can have, uh, of making uh, you feel you could do things that you never thought you could do. Uh, and I think many of us have had that experience um, through Orly, um, and uh, that is, uh, is how he has done so much for our centre. Uh, as you'll discover, Orly is great fun. Um, he's quite good at Frisbee, uh, very good at making coffee, uh, and he is the president of the American Society of Wine Economists. Orly. <laughs> I'm going to use the lavalier, so I, I think he's turned it up so you can hear me. Can everybody hear all right? Yeah. Um, before I start, I'm going to read a little bit at the beginning just so I don't uh, skip over anything and you'll see what I'm going to do. Um, but before I do that, I just thought I'd say a couple things about this, um, this program. I did come here in 1976, so I still remember it. Um, we were in Faraday House. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, kind of a, I'm sure gone now. Uh, up by the Holborn tube station. And uh, uh, it was a, maybe a third or fourth floor walk up. There was no lift that I recall. Uh, and it was a good exercise every, every day. But there were a, a whole slew of wonderful people who visited there, even while I was there. Jim Heckman, Dick Freeman, lots of others. I see Dick Freeman is still connected with the CEP. And then it uh, started doing education. And Richard, as the great leader he is, uh, it, it, it got bigger and bigger, and it took on a bigger name. Uh, <laughs> it went from being an economics education center to a labor economics center, and then finally economic performance. It's hard to imagine uh, what else you could take over <laughs> after economic performance. But it's also been nice to see the LSC prosper. I, I don't remember anything like this kind of a room in the old LSC. There are, as always, some good things disappear, um, like the Paternoster, which I I never had the guts to ride over the top in it. I don't know if anybody remembers that. Oh, it's stuck over by the old building. Um, but I used to love those things. And uh, I've always had a great fondness. Especially, it's always a case that's really for the people at the school. And uh, when I was here, uh, it was Richard and a whole, uh, just a wonderful run of uh, people all the way from Steve Nickel to, who I know still comes, uh, but also <coughs> Parthenos Gupta. And he and I would be the only ones working on Saturday, usually. 
Um, I see now he's Sir. Actually, everybody I knew then is either a Lord or a Sir. Uh, Lord Nick Stern and uh, Lord Lord Richard and uh, I don't know who else hasn't yet made it. I see Dasgupta is just a Sir. I gather he's only Sir Sir Partha. <laughs> Uh, in, in any event, it was always a pleasure, and they were always wonderful economists, and everybody was treated with, uh, uh, I thought, a great uh, sensitivity. I, I, a story I told earlier, no one here will get probably, is that there was an Irish economist here named Terence Gorman, W.M. Gorman, very famous theorist, uh, who really was interested in economics, but he spoke two languages that was hard for most of us to understand. One was this Irish form of English, and the other was a form of mathematics where he solved his own problems. And I still remember going to him once when I wanted to work on using consumer theory to study a rationing problem. And I went into his office and I knew he would know how to do this. And I said, I, I heard someone had worked on this. Uh, could you tell me who that would be and where I would look? And uh, he said, well, I'm, I'm just going to say what Edmund Burke said orally uh, when he was asked why he didn't read very much, which was, if I read as much as others, I'd know as little. That was, that was his, his way to tell me to go back to my office and work it out. Uh, anyway, that was the kind of attitude everybody had. Anyway, it's a great thing to be here, um, and uh, my pleasure to, to be the penultimate member of this. Um, I'm going to read the beginning of this, and then, and then I hate it when people read speeches, but uh, I'm just going to read the very beginning, um, and then I'll launch into the talk, and I won't read any more. Uh, there's one quote I want to use, too, but let me start with this and then we can and then we can move on to what I'm going to really talk about and in order to do that I'm going to show you get you hungry um, there's a long history of measuring recording and comparing real wage rates dating at least from the price edicts of Diocletian in 301 AD a nominal wage rate dollars per hour divided by the price of a good dollars per good is a transparent measure of how much of the good an hour of work buys. It's measured in goods per hour. As such, a real wage rate provides an important indicator of the living standards of workers. At the same time, the nominal wage rate is also a measure of the price of labor. And when it is divided by the price of good the worker produces, it is a measure of how much of the good an hour of work produces. Thus, real wage rates are also connected to measures of labor productivity. This connection between wage rates, well-being, and productivity is at the heart of the modern economic analysis of labor markets. In principle, properly constructed measures of the real wage would provide comparisons across places and over time, and their differences and movements would provide the opportunity to measure the effects of public policies and to test many types of economic models. Analyses that make use of real wages range from studies of economic growth and output accounting to international trade and finance, uh, uh, to the study of migration, and inequality and to problems of political economy. Despite their obvious usefulness, there is general agreement that the absence of comprehensive measures of real wage rates is one of the most serious gaps in our evolving system of economic measurement. One of the few efforts to remedy that <clears throat> situation was Richard Freeman and uh, Remy Ustendorf's attempt to standardize the data collected by the International Labor Organization. These October inquiry data collected since 1924 are provided by individual countries but without any serious effort at standardization. As Freeman and Ustendorp observe, quote, recorded wages are not directly comparable across countries, in the same country over time, or even among occupations in a country at a point in time, in part because countries report data from differing national sources 
rather than conducting special surveys to answer the ILO request. Their conclusion? The inquiry data has so many problems that the survey is one of the least widely used sources of cross-country data in the world. This situation stands in sharp contrast with the progress that has been made in comparing international prices through the International Comparison Project. The ICP was initially started by the United Nations Statistical Division with the University of Pennsylvania, but it is now housed in the World Bank. It seems apparent that it is far past the time when similar progress should be made in the measurement of wage data. In this paper, I provide some preliminary analysis of my own attempt to measure wage rates for comparable workers doing the same tasks in different places and at different times. My goal is to show just how useful a credible, transparent measure of the wage rate can be for economic analysis. The data I use come from an organization that is famous for producing the same product in different places, and it has done so for many decades using a known production technology. The workers are thus using identical skills, using identical technology, and producing the same product. I am, of course, speaking of workers at McDonald's restaurants and their famous product, the Big Mac. I begin by using some historical examples to show how important the measurement of real wages is for our understanding of economic progress. I then provide the basic economic analysis that underlies the conceptual apparatus for the measurement of real wages. This leads me to a summary exploration of the data on crew member wage rate at, at McDonald's that I have collected over the last decade. The discussion proceeds in three parts. First, I provide some detail on how the data are collected and how they compare to the data for a more limited set of countries that we have available from the ILO and the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Second, I provide summary measures by broad economic region of the level of wage rates worldwide in 2007, a year I take to be normal by comparison with the period since. Finally, I explore the path that wage rates have taken in the normal period from 2000 to 2007 and compare that with the path they have taken since then in the aftermath of the world's recent financial crisis. So that's the plan, and hopefully I'll get to that, and then we'll have plenty of time for questions. Um, let me start with a table uh, that comes from Robert Allen. Uh, Robert Allen is an economic historian at Nuffield College. I uh, hope you can see that. Uh, I've blown this up as big as I can really get it, but I'll explain to you what it means, and it probably will become clear in a second. There's been an explosion of interest in comparing real wage rates across countries. Uh, that's happened and has been led to a large extent by Allen, uh, a Canadian who teaches in Oxford. Uh, and it has led to um, a fascinating uh, array of development of data uh, I put this example up so you can sort of see uh, the problems that you run into when you try to do this kind of analysis, uh, and it's, it's for 1704. Um, but this has now been done uh, for uh, wage rates in Rome uh, and for lots of other places at many points in time before the Industrial Revolution, and a pattern is emerging from that. Uh, the thing about real wage rates is <clears throat> they're, they're much more transparent and, in fact, easier to construct than anything like a, a gross domestic product number. Uh, you can imagine, it's inconceivable really, that we could have a credible measure of the gross domestic product in Rome. But we could certainly have a conceivable, a, a, a good measure of the real wage rate. And uh, this example here I took from uh, a paper that Alan has written about a comparison between London and Canton. Can Canton is the province that, that holds Hong Kong. And basically, th these come from the data of a, of a man who worked for the East India Company, and uh, like lots of English people over decades, someone who in, in always collected data and information. 
So what he's got here are data on prices. The way I've expressed them is the way uh, Alan does. They're relative prices. So the first column is the English price compared to the Chinese price. And then the second two columns are the budget shares associated with these particular goods. Starch, by the way, has already been agglomerated into a, a caloric measure because English people eat bread and Chinese people eat rice. Uh, but you can see there's starch, meat, milk, so on. And then at the bottom, <coughs> there's a wage rate, a relative wage. Now, these prices and these wage rates are measured in units of silver, grams of silver, which was what the East India Company generally used as an exchange rate anyway. Uh, and you can see very clearly that the money wage rate, not surprisingly, probably almost every English person would think this, in 1704 was higher, almost by four times, three to four times, what it was in China. But you can also see that in silver grams, grams the, the prices were much higher too. If you, you can then apply the budget shares, you can say, well, I'm a Chinese guy and I want to see whether or not I'd be better off in London. Or you could apply uh, the, the London budget shares. And if you do that, you'll get a, price, a relative price index, the cost of living in the UK, in London, compared to somewhere else. And you can see in the first column at the bottom, the, uh, the difference, the, that price ratio is three. So according to English budget shares, it costs three times as much to buy the, those, those units of goods in England as it did in, in China. If you use Chinese budget shares, you see it costs uh, five times as much uh, to, buy, to buy the English bundle of goods using the budget and you can all, if you look closely at the numbers you'll see that what's going on is the classic problem of why budget shares uh, respond uh, to price differences. So expensive things in China uh, people there buy less of and the same is true of those in London. When you get to the bottom line now you can divide and that's what I've done uh, under the there's a there's a using English budget shares uh, the real wage rate is about 22 percent higher 1.22 uh, in London than it is in Canton. If you use Chinese budget shares, it's 25% less. It's 0.75. This general result, which is that if you take a, a, an average of those, which is really a kind of like a Fisher ideal index, suggests that real wages were not very different between Canton and uh, London in, I'll come back to this, in 1704. What most of the research about real wages prior to the Industrial Revolution is telling us, and I'm not mentioning this because I mean this to be a major part of what I'll talk about, but it is beginning to give us a picture. And the picture mainly is that real wages didn't differ by very much across the world. What we see today is not the way it used to be for thousands of years. Uh, there are not, we still don't have a complete picture, but I'll come back to some examples in just a few minutes. I wanted to show you that example to start so you could see how, if you're an economic historian, you could get excited about this. This is a, this is a fascinating examples that still exist in particular sets of data everywhere. And why do I do that? Because I want to try to, to get you to think, boy, wouldn't it be good if we had real wages? We could actually keep track of what was going on while it's going on, rather than trying to reconstruct what was happening uh, from a long time ago. This is another famous example. This is a, a fairly typical example. It's a, quite a controversy in American economic history at its time. This is a comparison of wage rates I'm going to show you over time. So here we're going to, we're not going to think about comparing two different places, we're going to think about what real wage rates were often used for <clears throat> in the past, which is to make comparisons over time. Has there been progress in some particular place? The example I'm going to take up <clears throat> is one in which Paul Douglas, uh, I'm sure you don't know who he was, a very famous American economist. You've ever heard of the, the, the Cobb-Douglas production function, that is the same Douglas, 
He was a professor of economics at Chicago. Um, he, uh, it was ironic for me to give the presidential address because he had given his presidential address in 1948. But the irony of it is that in, in 1941, when the Second World War started, even though he was a professor at Chicago, he enlisted. He was in his 40s and actually served and lost part of his arm. He was then elected a senator from Illinois for many, for many, many terms, actually. And, uh, and then even while he was senator, was elected uh, president of the American Economic Association, rather unusual situation. He had written a book in 1930 <clears throat> called Real Wages in the United States. It was the source of his initial fame. And in it, he had constructed a nominal wage series, which is the green line that you see on the picture. Um, and he had also constructed a price index. The price index uh, increased about the same level, I'll show it to you in a minute, as the nominal wage index. And he concluded that over this period from 1890 to 1914, the real wage had not changed. This is a period of industrial revolution in the United States. Uh, the period after 19, 1914, by the way, is typically chosen because that's the beginning of the First World War, the kind of a normalcy thing like I'm talking about when I'm going to talk about normalcy here. Um, it was a, quite a puzzle for many people because it was clear that output per capita had grown during this period, during the, during the Industrial Revolution. And after 1914, it was clear that real wages had grown substantially. So the second series, the blue one, was constructed by Albert Rees. Albert Rees was also a professor at the University of Chicago, uh, actually in part a student of Douglass's. And to show you the lineage, he was my teacher at Princeton University. I always actually wanted, and one of the reasons I've done this talk is because I always wanted to construct a wage index of my own. Having, having seen Reese do it, my teacher, I thought, well, it seems like something I should do before I come to the end, make, I should construct a wage index. So you're, you will see shortly the Ashenfelder index. Uh, and, and, and I'll try to give you various interpretations of it. In any event, uh, Reese was much more, it, it was typical in Douglass's time to use union wage scales, as was very commonly the case by labor economists everywhere. Paul Douglas was a labor economist. And, uh, and then to construct price data, which is what, in fact, I showed you just earlier, primarily based on agricultural products, since most people, that's primarily what they consume before the Industrial Revolution. Reese realized that this was probably a mistake for the period from 1890 to 1914, because during this period, industrial goods were, become a much were becoming a much larger fraction of a typical worker's budget. So he constructed, first of all, he tried to get what he thought would be a better measure of the nominal wage, and he did that by trying to use a bigger cross-section of wage data than just union scales. You can see it shows up here as a lower wage level. That doesn't surprise anybody very much. But then he went a long way to try to construct a better price series. The green series, again, is the, is the price series that, uh, that uh, uh, Douglas constructed, showing the really dramatic price increases, and the blue one is the one Reese constructed. Now, the thing I like about this in particular, and, and Reese was always very proud of it, is Reese used a breakthrough in technology to collect these price data. At the time, it wasn't clear how you would collect data in some sort of centralized basis for industrial products that were exactly equivalent. What was his secret breakthrough to use in 1890 and 1914? the Sears and Roebuck catalog. The Sears, I don't know if any of you are old enough, when I was a child in North Dakota, where I lived as a small child, the greatest moment occurred just, just before Thanksgiving when along came that we used Montgomery Ward, the Montgomery Ward catalog. 
just in time for me to, you know, slobber over it all the way up until Christmas time when, you know, please God, my parents would have sent off for something to me to have. So he was able to use these, it's really like discovering the internet as a way to, to measure prices. He used it to try to construct a, a, a more complete measure of a price index, which included, um, which included uh, manufactured items. And you can see what he found, basically. The blue line is the Reese Real Wage Index, and you can see it's increasing here by almost a third during this period when Douglas's line, which is on the top, doesn't increase at all. Reese had speculated there might be a reason why real wages wouldn't increase. Uh, at this period, for example, the western borders were being closed in the U.S., so that might have pressured uh, workers into factories in the east. Uh, there, were, there were other conceivable explanations for it as well. But it turns out the simplest explanation is just to collect better data and not to use the methods that had been used in the past. Now I'm going to show you one more slide that's related to collecting old data, but before I do that, take a look at the yellow line. This is one of the sure kill-offs that real wages had probably increased. Uh, when Reese started his study in 1890, the normal work week was 60 hours. It was basically 10 hours a day for six days a week. You can see by the end of this period, uh, they've gone to half day on Saturday. There's been a cut of about four to five hours in the work week during this period. This is an extremely common thing that happens when real wages increase. It's true, poor countries, people work longer hours than in rich countries. And as countries get richer, they typically work fewer hours as well. This is in a pretty well-defined example. Uh, let me just show you one more thing, and then I'll move to what I really want to talk about. This is what, by, this not, by the way, I showed you what happened in the US from 1990-1914. This is now a cross-section that Alan put together for me of real wage measures based on his bare-bones subsistence cost uh, measure of a price index. So he sort of constructs what it would take to subsist, uh, and then he tries to price that uh, in uh, many different countries. Uh, it's very noticeable by, by, you remember I showed you that earlier that wasn't clear that wage rates were any different in Canton than they were in London? By this time, we now see the complete divergence. Uh, if you look through Japan, Canton, Beijing, Delhi, Florence, Florence a little higher but not much, Bengal, London seven and a half times as high. Oxford six, Amsterdam five, uh, Mexico City one and a half, Chicago six. You suddenly have the developed world. It's a very small world, but you have the developed world. In that one period, we went from something that uh, Malthusians, Ricardians, and so on never thought could happen real wages could never increase to they had increased. Uh, and, and you might even say that what we're observing now is the Industrial Revolution got stopped in some places. And in some of these places it has Florence, for example. It did proceed. In others, India and China, it did not. And it's now, hopefully, uh, starting. And I'll give you some evidence on that in a second. Um, let me talk for just a, before I get you too bored, uh, make a, three theoretical comments. These are, this is not meant to be theoretical, it's meant to be a lecture for anybody to understand. Um, and uh, let me just make the three points that I hope you'll find useful when we come to talk about the other data. Um, you could think about the real wage rate from two different points of view, as I mentioned in the introduction. One is the welfare of a worker. The way we think about the welfare of a worker <clears throat> is we think of the welfare of the worker as being some uh, maximized level of utility, which depends on the wage rate, W prices P, and what they have in the way of unearned income. If I solve that for W star, I'm going to call that function W star, 
This is the basis for a constant utility index number of real wages. This has kind of been ignored in the literature. John Penn Cavill, by the way, he was a, is English, it, it became an American recently, I don't know why, uh, teaches at Stanford University uh, and was a longtime friend, is a longtime friend of mine, uh, wrote a paper about this in 1977. <clears throat> he was concerned, and the reason he was concerned is because of this previous diagram. Uh, if you look at what happens to hours per week, you can see that if hours per week had not declined, uh, income per week would actually be, in this particular case, about 10% higher than otherwise would be the case. Well, today in manufacturing, hours are about 40 per week, and they used to be 60. So if people worked 60 hours, their earnings per week would be 50% higher than they currently are. Clearly, they've taken some part of what their real wage rate increase produced for them and used it to reduce the hours that they're at work. A real wage index deals with that problem. It does not treat the hours that you're at work as exogenous, as something that's set by nature. It treats it as something that you choose yourself. And, that, and, the, and, a, and a real wage index constructed in this way takes account of that. If, if, you, if you construct, if we know what the price level is, the non-labor income level is, and we fix V star, we can then ask what's the W star that we need in order to get you to a real wage level that was, that, it, that was at the prices we saw in the past. There are just a couple of things to say about this. Pencavel actually constructed real wage indices using this. He didn't find, given the data that we had and in, in, in the, in the labor supply functions we had, he didn't find that it made a whole lot of difference. So I'm going to actually act as if it didn't matter so much. Uh, that ours are endogenous. But you should be aware of the fact that when you compare countries at very largely different levels of development or at very different, big differences in time, a comparison of the real wage rate has a huge advantage over a comparison of incomes. Um, <clears throat> there are a couple of things more I want to say about it. From the worker's point of view, it doesn't matter if there are imperfections in the product or labor markets, this is still a measure of welfare for the worker. A minimum wage increases the wage, it makes them better off. Uh, a decrease in prices increases, uh, reduces the wage that you need to get to the same utility level, it makes them better off. Uh, it also has something to say, so, so it doesn't matter if a minimum wage could be a good thing from the point of view of a worker in that regard. Uh, the, the, it, and, and this index, even if there's monopoly in the product market, prices are too high, or monopoly in the labor market, wages are too low, this index nevertheless gives you the correct level of welfare for these workers. It reflects those differences in wages and prices caused by imperfections. Um, so distortions in the labor or product markets don't affect its interpretation. A second point to make about it is, notice that in the real wage index, Y, which is your other income, income you get not by working, is held constant. This also tells you that the real wage you need, the wage that you need to reach a little level of utility, is lower the more there's non-labor income out there. So to the extent that you have a safety net in the world, you don't need as high a wage rate to get to the same level of utility as you would in a place where you don't have a safety net. This is just something to keep in mind. There isn't much we can do about it because we rarely, if ever, have enough data to be able to make the appropriate comparison. But it's something to, to think about. Um, the second way to think about the real wage is you can think about it as the marginal product of labor. Now this is going to require some additional assumptions. Um, <clears throat> but basically, as everybody knows, profit-maximizing firms are supposed to set <clears throat> the price of their output times the uh, marginal product of labor equal to the wage rate, which means that the marginal product of labor, if there are no distortions in the product or labor market, the, the real wage rate is a measure of the marginal product of labor. It automatically tells you something about the productivity of workers. 
Let me give you a simple example. I'll show you a little bit later. I'll do a little breakdown of this and show you how you can use the wage rate to measure total factor productivity. Think about a simple example, Cobb-Douglas production function. Uh, in this production function, there's output per capita as a function of the capital output ratio, <clears throat> and it's also a function of total factor productivity A and some human capital measure H. Okay, so wages get scaled by capital output ratios, by total factor productivity, how efficient the country is, and also by, for a particular worker, uh, or for the average worker, what the human capital level is. Now, one of the interesting things about, uh, if you had the exact same worker in two places, you could actually compare the wage rates of those people. And if you took a ratio, which is what I'm going to do here, <clears throat> The ratio of the wage rate of the person in country zero to the person in country I in that zeroth occupation would depend, would be a measure of the total factor productivity ratio, uh, as well as the differences in the capital output ratios. So if you adjusted the real wage rate for the capital output ratio, ratio you'd actually get a measure directly of the total factor productivity in one country compared to another. I'm going to show you some measures like that. But basically, if you measure the real wage rate in a country in dollars and you compare it to the real wage rate in the US, uh, to a first order approximation, so long as the countries don't have vastly different capital output ratios, you have a measure of total factor productivity. Now, actually, in the data that most people use, there are very few differences in capital output ratios. They play a tiny role in this decomposition. So to a first order approximation, the ratio of the, of the, I'm going to call it the McWage, in, in one country compared to another is a measure of the, of the ratio of the total factor productivities. Now, notice here, however, there's a key set of assumptions. This assumes that the wage rate is not distorted. The existence of a minimum wage, for example, will change the wage structure, and so I won't be comparing the same points on that, that uniform structure. This is always assumes here, by the way, that there's a, 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 a single factor measure of human capital. I won't be doing that, so that will throw off the comparison, and I'll show you it does in some of the later examples. And of course, if there are distortions in the product or the labor market, that will throw it off too. So this, is, this requires additional assumptions, and of course the notion that firms are profit maximizing before it's useful. Um, now let me get to what uh, I hope you'll find uh, most amusing. Um, oh, I have one more thing I have to tell you about. Uh, the Blasius Samuelson effect. This is a deep embarrassment for me. I'm sure everybody in this room knows what this is. Uh, I took my, first, my last international trade course, I'm a labor economist, in 1964. That was when Balassa and Samuelson published their papers on this particular topic. Uh, a simple way to put it is, it, it's, it's, it's an explanation for why uh, you don't expect purchasing power, uh, uh, purchasing power parity to work everywhere. Another way to put it is, it's an explanation for why uh, haircuts are cheap in India compared to London. Uh, and the way to think about it is the following. It's very, I've done this in a straightforward way, but I'm actually going to make use of this, this equation that's on this thing here. I'm gonna, it's, it'll be a, a way in which you'll see it in just a second. <clears throat> the basic idea is this. S suppose that different countries are, uh, have different productivities in the tradable sector. So now we introduce two sectors, tradable and non-tradable. A tradable sector that the, we will assume, and there, of course, there are a lot of reasons this isn't true, the prices of the goods in the tradable sector have to be the same everywhere. <clears throat> However, the wage rates within a country, tradable and non-tradable, have to be the same everywhere, too. So the wage rate in the country is really set in the tradable sector, 
and it has to be equal to the wage rate in the non-tradable sector. What that means is if a country is not good at exports, if it has low total factor productivity, then there'll be a low wage rate, and it will basically mean that imported goods will be expensive in the poor country and cheap in the rich country and vice versa. Now, a simple way to think about that, and because I'm going to actually give you an example, I'm going to make an argument. I, this is a little far-fetched. I know some of you are going to think it's far-fetched, but you'll be surprised how accurate it looks. Uh, this, what I've written down here is what would, what would be the cost function for producing a product that had Cobb Douglas uh, uh, production function and that used two inputs, a non-tradable, which has price W, I've called that W0, and a tradable, which has price P, which is the same everywhere. So what happens is there's a non-tradable price, <clears throat> and that non-tradable price reflects differences in the production technology, that's the little a, a gives you the fraction of the, uh, a is the fraction of the uh, total cost that's in the, in the uh, non-tradable sector, uh, times what the cost is of that non-tradable good, uh, and that's got a little subscript on it, i, and then of course times p, which is uh, raised to the, to the share, which is, uh, is the, the, the fraction tradable, but that p by assumption is the same everywhere. Now, if you solve this for the, for the row weight, now the, that means you have to think about two different things. There's two prices now. There's the price of tradables, that's the P, which is the same everywhere, and there's the price of non-tradables, and that varies across places. <clears throat> so if you look at the bottom I've constructed for you, suppose that I construct a real wage rate, which is the one which is important for a consumer. For a consumer, what I want is the nominal wage rate divided by uh, the, the price of this composite good, PN, which is something which is quasi-tradable. It's got parts of it that are tradable and parts that are not. Well, the wage rate measured W0 compared to PN, as you can see, is a, is a, is a concave function of the wage rate measured uh, in tradable terms. And I'll come back to show you that, that, that uh, by the way, you probably can guess what I'm going to call, what, I, what good I'm going to think of as that quasi-tradable. It's going to be a Big Mac and I'll explain to that, that to you in a minute. Big Macs are about 50% uh, tradable good. Uh, and I'll show you actually that this, what this means is, if you look at the bottom equation, W over PN is a purchasing power parity price real wage, whereas W naught over P is a, a real wage rate which is measured in tradable. So it's, now I had to introduce this because, uh, there, now there, there, by the way, this, for some people this stretches, I actually I gave this talk in Chicago and and Erwin D., who I'm a great fan of, was, found this hard to believe. But Dan McFadden, sitting next to him, thought it was quite believable. And I'll show you some information that, that might make convince you that the Big Mac uh, price is not such a bad uh, measure. It does have one huge advantage. There's n if, you can, if you can measure the real wage rate the way I've done in this bottom line, you don't need any exchange rates. Exchange rates have no role in this. So it gets rid of, so if you don't think there's purchasing power parity prices, uh, equality everywhere. It does solve that problem. Uh, this is the good in case anybody's never had one. <laughs> is there anybody who's never had a Big Mac? People, you know, I think people lie. They say they've never seen a Big Mac or had one, but I think they lie. Pretty hard not to have a Big Mac sometime in your life. Um, anyway, that's, that's a, uh, this is what's sometimes called a full meal. <laughs> uh, a Big Mac fries and a drink. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I don't eat McDonald's things very much anymore, but uh, let, me, I, now let me tell you how I got into this. I'll come back to that in a second. 
Um, does anybody know where this is? India. Yeah, that's India. Uh, that, I went to that McDonald's. Uh, the way I got interested in this project was in 1998. <clears throat> I was working for the McKinsey Global Institute, and we had a project in India. Uh, so I, you know, I stayed in the Taj Palace like all the rest of you. Uh, didn't eat anything or drink anything that wasn't in some three-star hotel. Uh, as you know, you can't eat or drink anything in India. Uh, so I didn't unless it was in some fancy place. Uh, I paid a ton of money. All the water had to be filtered. Even then, I was afraid even in the Taj Palace to drink the water. So, of course, I brushed my teeth with bottled water. Uh, I'm sure you've all done that. Uh, you've probably maybe done the same thing in China as well. Most parts of the world, you cannot eat or drink any of the water. Can't drink the water, can't eat the food. Uh, so I said to, I was sitting with my good friend, and I'll show you a picture of him, Sergi Bala. Uh, there he is, in front of the McDonald's. My good friend, Sir, I said, Sergi, could you just tell me, this is 1998, what is the wage rate of an ordinary person here in India? Ah, he said, this is a subject of much discussion. So I said, well, look, yeah. do you have McDonald's? Yes, we have McDonald's. Okay, how much does somebody at McDonald's make? I don't know. So that's the origin of this picture. We went off to visit the McDonald's. This is actually a picture taken after it was closed. You can see that the door is closed over there. Uh, it is true, by the way, that Big Macs in India are made with chicken, not with beef. However, when I was there in 1998, they made it with lamb, which is a very tasty burger, I thought, myself. Uh, in any event, we, we sat down and we collected data. Uh, of course, uh, we went in and we saw this. This was exactly what we saw. The, and that's a, well, chicken Maharaja Mac. Uh, the, the, you can see it looks an awful lot like a Big Mac, doesn't it? Uh, these are the meal combos. Uh, and, and we both ordered things. Uh, Sergi Bala, who's a great friend of mine, is uh, kind of a vegetarian, but you know what? They have that. They have, there's, oh, you see Ronald McDonald back there, too. Uh, and there's our bill. After all the scandal over economists that have faked their data, I kept my bill. <laughs> so you can, <laughs> you can see this in 1998. Uh, thanks for coming. Imply, the little star means I had a frozen dessert. Well, of course, I always have a Big Mac, a shake, and fries. That's, that's my idea of a Big Mac meal. And you can see I had a Maharaja Mac, which cost me 52 rupees. And that, and that was about, at that time, I think a rupee was about 45. I don't think it's much different now. So it was a pretty good price, I thought. Uh, for a, for a, a, a Big Mac, and he had a McDee's Coke. I guess we didn't have fries, and of course I had a, a shake. This little star means it was a had a special tax, I guess, because it was a frozen dessert. And there's our bill. I gave him 500 rupees, and I and I got back 338. The whole thing's in English, uh, and and everybody that was in there looked just like Americans, except they were brown. Uh, there's no there are no Americans, and McDonald's are not. That's not what McDonald's is for. They're for local people, not for other people. So I got started, and uh, oh, here's, here's my next one. I was also involved with this operation in Prague. Anybody recognize this? This is, might be the most beautiful McDonald's I've ever been in. This is in a listed building in Prague, and you can sit outside with those cool little things. Uh, by the way, what I did in India is uh, I, we, 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 I bought that thing, and then we uh, asked the worker who was standing around or nearby what they made, what was her wage in rupees. Uh, and uh, at that time, they were making, as I recall, 15 rupees. The Big Mac was uh, whatever it was, 50-something. Uh, obviously, they were, these kids were not eating their own Big Macs. Uh, and uh, 
So I did the same thing, and, and, and then they took. I, then he gave us a tour. So Sergi then asked the man, "Can we have a tour of the of your kitchen?" And we got a tour. It looked exactly like an American one. There, there was the burger flipper thing. There was a little thing, and there's this. So I asked, "Well, you know, how do you do this?" In, in my hotel, the lights go out at six o'clock every night, and then the generator comes on. And he said, "Well, that's what happens here. Lights go out at six o'clock, and the generator comes on. They have a full generator, and they filter all the water." So I'll come back to this in a minute, but the reason the secret of McDonald's success and why they're growing like crazy in the developing world is because they sell the most important product you can buy in those places, food safety. Food safety, that's what you're buying. You may think it tastes okay, but it's food safety. That's what it's all about. And when there's a failure, it's enormous cost to them. So they're absolutely rigid about the way they do things. And if you don't do it their way, it's the highway. There's no other way to do it because there's too much at stake whenever there's a, a, a food failure fraud. Uh, so there we are. That's my friend Stepan Ureta, who I've been working with this, on this project for 10 years. Out in front of the, it's still there, just the same. This picture is fairly recent. Uh, Stepan and I have been collecting data now since 1998. I started, let me tell you, I started with McKinsey, the Global Institute. Um, and uh, you might as well look at this when I'm saying this. I started off, I wasn't sure if we could really do this, because obviously I couldn't travel. I'd been to, to Prague, and I'd been to Delhi. I had some idea of what wage rates looked like, and it looked like everything was exactly the same in both places. Uh, the outside of the building looks prettier here, but the inside's just the same. And I think it's kind of exotic to have a cow wandering around in front of your, front of your restaurant, so I'm not actually sure which one I prefer. Uh, in, in any event, uh, I, it was clear that I couldn't do that. The McKinsey people helped me, and we start off by collecting data in 13 countries at many different levels of development. And there seemed to be no problem with it. Why was I concerned? Well, McDonald's is famous. And in fact, I'm always afraid to talk about this. They're famous for their reluctance. They operate in over 120 countries. And they clearly have the data I'm going to show you in headquarters in Chicago. They're not going to share it with anybody. I don't blame them. But they obviously do, are not interested in having the world know about this information. It's not something that they put up and post on a billboard. And I'll explain a little bit more about that in a second. Uh, so we I focus on entry-level crew-type people. Um, I'm just going to say a little bit about this, because otherwise we will end up without having any time for questions at all. Uh, they're usually in virtually identical jobs. They normally rotate, so they do everything. Labor input's the same. Uh, they produce more or less identical product. Uh, in fact, let me, let me read to you my, my favorite example of someone who's written about this. People wax about this. This is uh, from uh, Thomas Friedman, Lexus and the Olive Tree. Maybe some of you have read it. Here's what he says in his uh, chapter on McDonald's. He has a chapter on McDonald's. Every once in a while, when I am traveling abroad, I need to indulge in a burger and a bag of McDonald's French fries. If there's an American, an American audience, you'd probably identify with this immediately. For all, for all I know, I have eaten McDonald's burgers and fries in more countries of the world than anyone. And I can testify that, this is in italics in the original, they all really do taste the same. That's Thomas Friedman. Incidentally, he's, uh, anyone's interested in international relations knows, he's the author of The Golden Arches Theory of Conflict, which I'm told by my international relations friends empirically works better than the democracy theory. You know the theory? The theory is if you, two countries that have a McDonald's have never had a war. There is an exception, Bosnia, Croatia, but it was short. Uh, democracy theory doesn't work nearly as well. Uh, I'm told by the IR folks. So there's a whole chapter in the Lexus and the Olive Tree about the golden arches theory of conflict. It's controversial. <clears throat> I don't claim to necessarily have anything to say about that. Just, just telling you that it's out there. Uh, 
Uh, so they do the same thing everywhere. Uh, they use this operations manual. There's a rather good book by an Englishman about this. He kind of snuck in to learn all this. It has photographs and tables, and they have these uh, very complicated, uh, they more or less uh, uh, have a, a, a time motion system for doing all of this. Uh, about 90% of the workers are uh, hourly people. Uh, the, probably the other 10%, now this could matter in other places, but I'm just going to look at the hourly wage people. Because dealing with the higher level uh, providers, of course, could be a much bigger issue than a lot of them. But, and the, food, the main thing about the thing is that the, uh, what you're really buying is food safety. Uh, if you won't go along with the food safety arrangements they have, then you can't sell. For example, Iceland has had to give up their McDonald's. Because typically half of, uh, there's a nice paper on this by Parsley and Way and the EJ, typically half of the ingredients are imported and they're usually processed somewhere in a central facility where they can all be inspected and then they're brought to the restaurant itself. <clears throat> so in Iceland, of course, they insisted on everything being imported. When the Icelandic uh, currency collapsed, uh, they couldn't sell a Big Mac at a low enough price to actually make a living, so they shut all the stores down. So there are no Big Macs in Iceland. And they and they've claimed they were going to go over to using domestic sources, but uh, McDonald's doesn't permit that if it, if it doesn't go through the central sourcing system. Uh, and they use more or less, as far as I can tell, just almost identically the same technology because, of course, they're producing the same good and have for a long time. Here's a data collection. We started off uh, with a few countries in 2008, uh, and now I have data for over 60 countries in uh, 2007, all for the hourly wage rates. Uh, there's a paper around somewhere if you're really interested in it. Typically, I'm collecting data on a capital city, uh, stores in a capital city. Uh, in big countries, uh, originally I started off by collecting in two cities. So in the U.S. it was New York and Los Angeles. Now I collect data in, in a, we stratify on the size of the city in the big, big countries uh, and collect data in, uh, uh, for a stratified sample of, of uh, different sized cities. I do that in China, Russia, India, and the U.S. Uh, that started in 2007. Of course I get the price of a Big Mac. Uh, and. Uh, and uh, the, the economist collects data on that, so I can compare it with that. Uh, and people often ask me, what about reliability? <clears throat> um, well, here's an offer I've made to actually more people than I, than I should in this room. Uh, I always like to have people check these data. <clears throat> I use a company in Germany to collect them. So here's my offer. If you go to an esoteric place, now London is not going to satisfy me here. London is not going to work. If you go to an esoteric place, well, let's say you go to... Uh, Morocco or someplace, and they have a McDonald's. Uh, I, and, and if you uh, buy a Big Mac, you can buy other things too if you want, and you buy a Big Mac, and you ask the crew member what the wage rate is, and write it on the back, I will pay for your meal. <laughs> now there's an offer. There's an offer. My RA, my Chinese RA just came back from China, and I'm proud to say that she took her entire family. <laughs> but. Here's the good news, she's a product of the one-child <laughs> policy, so this is three people, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, they had, they, and they went at noonday, so they didn't, get, they didn't have to pay the big price. You know, just like here, they have a special deal at lunch. Uh, and sure enough, a Big Mac costs 15 uh, renminbis, and the workers get nine. Uh, for a, a, a Big Macs per hour of about 0.6, you'll see in a minute, that's more or less what I have, too. In, in the data that we collected. So I was more than happy to pay her the entire $10 that it cost me. <laughs> it's also the poorer the country, the cheaper the cost to me to collect the data, really. So if you do that, I'm prepared to, and so I've had people amazing at a lot of different places, Denmark, India, Italy, 
uh, now I have China, so there's, there's been people that have, these are not all of them, in fact, economists who've sort of been fascinated by this and gone to look. Um, our Big Mac prices look pretty much like the, the, uh, the ones in The Economist. Uh, now let me, let me give a, so what I'm going to do here, I'm going to talk about reliability. The only other way I can think about reliability, and we're going to finish on time pretty much, uh, is I can compare the data I have with wage rates that, I, that are collected from other, by other, other groups. There's two main sources I can show you. <clears throat> One of them is uh, data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. They're definitely not comparable. Uh, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, collects data on wage rates and compensation costs in manufacturing in a, a, in, a, in, a, in a number of countries, 20 or 25 countries. Most of them are not very poor countries. Some of them are, so they tend to be at the top. Now let me show you the picture, and the way I'm going to do this is clearly a manufacturing job is different from McDonald's, so this comparison is not the same. On the other hand, it doesn't mean the wage structure doesn't shift exactly in proportion, so we'll look at this. Uh, this is the picture. That is not a regression line. There are no regression lines. There are no regression lines at all. That's a 45-degree line. I have expressed uh, all of the, everything you'll see, I've generally, I've expressed relative to the U.S. So the point one one on the graph, you'll see, is the U.S. That, that's, uh, one one is a, uh, uh, the, the hourly wage, uh, uh, yeah, that's the, the oh, it should say the Big Mac hourly, or the, the muck wage, actually. This, this needs to be fixed. But anyway, I think in the paper it does. Uh, so the muck wage, this is the wage rate in dollars on the bottom, and then the BLS index again. Uh, this is in 2007 and exchange rates then prevalent. So this is a, a measure of the wage. I guess we should think of it as in tradables, because it's measured in U.S. dollars. Uh, there are a couple of things you could, that you want to take note of, because you're going to see this again. Generally speaking, the things are pretty good. Looks pretty much on the 45-degree line. The real exceptions uh, typically are going to be, when we see them, where there is a, uh, uh, a really high uh, minimum wage. And that's what accounts for uh, Norway and Denmark. So there are examples where uh, my measure of the wage, which of course is going to reflect the minimum wage if it's very high, is there, but of course the, the manufacturing wage where the minimum wouldn't be binding won't affect it. So that's a one example. And you can see that it's, it's not, they're not identical by any means, but it's not at all obvious that if you, depending on what you're looking for, that you wouldn't be just as well off to have the wage rate of McDonald's as the wage rate in manufacturing. But generally speaking, in relative terms, you're not going to get a huge difference. Uh, here's an ILO measure. Now the ILO has many more data points from way, way, way down at the bottom of the distribution and not as so many at the top. Uh, to give a scale of this, uh, I couldn't put Denmark on this chart. Because <laughs> I put Denmark on the chart, it's at two and a half the size of the, size of the U.S. Uh, McWage. Then everything would be down there in the bottom. It's already bad enough when you put the developed countries and the less developed countries in the same chart. But generally speaking, you can see it works pretty well. This is for the wage rate of a laborer. Uh, they're clearly not identical, but they look like they're pretty closely related. This is one of my favorite examples. Let me, let me do this first. Uh, this is a, oops, you know, these are out of order, aren't they? Uh, no, yes, they are out of order. Um, something's missing here. Why is it missing? Uh, that is, well, no, no, anyway. <coughs> uh, th this is the thing I wanted to show you about the Blas-Samuelson effect. There is some slide here missing, but I'm not sure why. Um, remember I showed you that little picture? 
And what it showed you is that, uh, that the, uh, the Big Mac price should be a concave function of the wage rate in the local country. Well, on the right, on the horizontal axis, is the McWage, and the Big, and the Big Mac price is on the other axis. Any of you who are familiar with the uh, uh, Summers and Heston paper on purchasing power price parity measures, purchasing power price measures, will recognize this thing immediately. That's exactly how a PPP price index looks compared to a measure of real GDP. What that implies is that if I use their PPP measures, their purchasing power parity prices, I'll get almost exactly the same thing as I would get if I used Big Macs per hour. And I thought I had a slide that showed you that, but I don't. Um, oh, there it is. Yes, that's it right there. So this is this is on the on the on the on the horizontal on the on the vertical axis is the Big Macs per hour, and on the vertical axis is the PPP adjusted McWage ratio. So you can see you get just basically the same thing. Uh, and I tried to I reason I was I must admit when I first saw this I was very puzzled. And then I realized when I look at the picture of the Big Mac price graphed against the wage, what the reason is. It's just this result of the fact that in poor countries, the Big Mac is composed of about half uh, non-tradable goods, and so that part of it is cheaper. And therefore, if you have this kind of Cobb-Douglas technology, uh, you, get a, you, get a, uh, you, get, you get what I showed you earlier, which was this... Uh, this concave function. So now you now you can see. So this explains why using a purchasing power. I, I always am reluctant to talk about this because it, it makes it seem as kind of trivial what uh, Heston and Summers have done by collecting these phenomenal data to make comparisons across countries. Because you you would you know can you really get it from just by looking at a Big Mac price? Uh, the answer is no. By the way, and the reason the answer is no is because McDonald's does not exist everywhere, and it certainly does not exist in the poorest countries. Uh, well, I think that's one of the secrets of why the McDonald's, the big gar golden arches theory of conflict works. They have to reach a certain level before you can, there's not going to be any McDonald's in, uh, in Zimbabwe. There's not going to be one in a very, very poor country. So the, uh, the, uh, it's, you can't, you can't do without the PPP measures. But basically the real wage rate measured in Big Macs per hour and in PPP things looks pretty darn similar. Um, that's, oh, this is another thing I want to show you. This is, this is a comparison of, now again in ratios, everything's on a 45 degree line. This, is, this uh, compares uh, uh, hourly uh, 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 labor productivity, output per man hour, uh, again ratio to the US, <coughs> against the McWage ratio. And this is going to be my argument for why the McWage is probably a pretty good measure of total factor productivity, because basically all measures of total factor productivity are more or less identical to measures of output per man hour. Uh, you can see where the problem comes in, high minimum wages. Over on the far right, uh, you see uh, places with high minimum wages. Uh, the U.S. is at 1-1. One, one. Uh, our minimum wage is not binding right now. Uh, it, it, it's pretty low, actually. Uh, but you can, you can, so that, that's the reason why it's going to be the case, as I'll show you in a minute, that if you do a, a, an adjustment to try to measure total factor productivity, you'll get the same sort of thing. Now, I'm just going to show you this, it's impossible to read, and it, but I want to show it to you, it's explain why the following tables that I'm going to show you are different. <clears throat> this is what happens if you try to look at all the data. It's hopeless. <laughs> it's completely hopeless. You cannot possibly look at all the data. And there's a few over here that I never got time to include. You can see Denmark, the world leader, <laughs> way, way up there. 
uh, minimum wage. And you can see, as you will see later, actually, Muslim countries at the bottom. The gap being extraordinary, really. <clears throat> but I only show you this because I'm not going to use any more graphs like this. These graphs show you the, the magnificent scale of what's going on here. But it's just too much to encompass, and you can't talk about it. If you were doing research and you wanted a spreadsheet, great. You could take it out and look at it. But you can't do it in a talk like this. So I'm going to get rid of so many countries. And we're going to boil it down to that many right there. <laughs> Now, this is a slightly embarrassing. I've actually, this is a bonus slide. Uh, if you had gone to the original talk, you wouldn't have gotten this. Because you're actually on this slide, UK. In the paper, I don't put you on. And uh, in the, in the, you, you don't make it. You're in Western Europe. I'm awful sorry about that. <laughs> I know it's offensive. But it, it, on the other side of the Atlantic, we see you as Western Europe. Uh, so I've put you, and I haven't actually taken the UK out of Western Europe, so you're counted twice here. So think of, your, think of it as a lucky thing. Uh, the US, is, 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 I put them in the first row because it's a big place, and Americans are interested in that. And then we go down the line, uh, Canada, uh, Russia, South Africa. These are kind of there because they're either big or interesting. Uh, South Africa, because they're really, except for Egypt, they're primarily the only country that you're going to get uh, where they have McDonald's in Africa. Uh, China, India, Japan, UK, rest of Asia. I, it's a good thing there's nobody from here from that, but you can probably guess what that is. Uh, Indonesia, etc. Uh, Eastern Europe, I hate that, and I feel bad about that too. My Czech friends are mixed right in there with the Poles. Uh, and Western Europe, which you're in too, uh, Middle East and Latin America. Uh, so that's dollars per hour in 2007. Uh, you, were the, you were high. Britain was very high. Uh, you'll see things aren't quite as, don't look quite the same in, in, the, in this. We go further along. Uh, the second column is the wage ratio. All I've done is to express the wage <coughs> relative to the US. So in principle, uh, this is a measure of productivity differences. Uh, now, of course, remember the exception I made. If there's a minimum wage, that's not fair. You shouldn't do that. Uh, but if it isn't, if there isn't, then it's perfectly sensible. And you can see the McWage ratio for China is 0.11. Uh, for India, uh, it's, uh, where is India? There it is, it's 0.06, even lower. Uh, Middle East, 0.13, very, very low. So, you know, when people wonder why are we building things in China, well, there's certainly one reason, which is wage rates are low. And these are for people, it's very important to keep in mind, doing exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. <clears throat> on the, in the third column, I put the Big Mac price in 2007, measured again in dollars. And you can see this Blasa Samuelson, but there's certainly not a quality of Big Mac prices. That's just nonsense. Uh, <clears throat> although you can see if you go to the developed countries, it doesn't look so different. And then on the far right, I give you Big Macs per hour. So in principle, if you bought all the arguments I gave you before, my theoretical points, the McWage ratio is a measure of productivity relative to the US. And Big Macs per hour <clears throat> is a measure of how well off consumers are relative to the US. Oh, no, not relative to the US. That's actually in, in real. That's Big Macs per hour. So, and in, in, in you can see some lessons here first. In the developed countries, Big Macs per hour is two to three. When someone tells me what a Big Mac is in a developed country, I can more or less guess what the wage is going to be. They tell me three bucks. I'd say the wage rate somewhere between six and nine. You know, so that's, in labor economics, that's actually pretty good. We're not chemists. We, don't, we aren't down to that level. Uh, you can also see that there's a group of extremely poor countries 
China, by the way, does pretty well on this, on this thing. Uh, notice, now the big max per hour, of course, is going to be uplifted, because remember, it's a concave function of that thing that's in the second column. So this raises the, the, the big max, big max per hour is going to be bigger relative to the U.S. than is the case of the McWage ratio, of the, of the McWage itself. So you can see uh, China is like a, maybe a quarter, big max per hour, about a quarter of the U.S. Uh, you can see India is lower, 0.35 or so. Uh, Japan's at three, at that time they were the highest. Western Europe, 2.2. Eastern Europe is lower. Uh, so that's kind of the picture. There's basically, I read it, the developed countries aren't very different. People are getting two to three. At, at this low level of the wage distribution, they're getting two to three big max per hour. There's a bunch of countries that are more like uh, uh, a level which is uh, a third to a half of big max per hour. And there are some countries that are even lower than that. Um, so you're, you're, there's kind of a set of, uh, of categories. Uh, and that gives you sort of the benchmark in 2007 from where we start. Uh, <clears throat> let's see what happened. Um, oh, I want to show you total factor product. Okay, so this, this is a, now what I've done here is to assume that capital output ratios are the same in all countries. That is not true, but it makes an adjustment in, even in a large country case of about maybe 25% change in what their ratio would be. So it's not going to make a huge difference to what I'm doing right here. Uh, the reason is because poor countries don't have much capital, but they don't have much output either. So actually, both of them are much lower. Now, this is a hypothetical TFP that's based on output per capita. What I've done there is to take output per capita and then to divide it by an index of human capital to try to construct that total factor productivity index. What I've used is something that uh, Chad Jones and Bob Hall invented, which is based on schooling levels. And sort of a, it's like a mincer returns to schooling function. So that's what's in the first column, again, relative to the US. And then in the second column, I have what came out of the previous table, the hypothetical total factor productivity based on the McWage. And you can see for many of the countries, it looks pretty good. You're not going to get a very big difference. For the poor countries, like China, for example, the output per capita measure is much higher than my measure. Uh, which one's right? Who knows? Uh, same thing with uh, another poor country like uh, the Middle East, same way. But for many of the others, like uh, Japan, it's dead on. Uh, uh, South Africa, it's pretty close. Russia, it's dead on. So you can see it's actually not a bad way, now that you can walk in anywhere you go in the world, just get a Big Mac, find out how much the people make, and divide one by the other, and you've got to measure. Uh, of how well off the people are in that country, and then convert into dollars, find out what it is in the U.S., and you've got a measure of total factor productivity relative to the U.S. And here's the good news, I'll pay for it if you go to a really exotic place. So you'll actually have a measure, you'll have some fun with it. Um, so let me, let me get this over with now, we're just about done. Uh, that's a comparison of the two total, just a graph of the, to of the total factor. Now let me talk a little bit about growth. I'm, I'm very sorry to say Western Europe disappears from this this table, although the UK is here. Uh, the reason Western Europe disappears is because the aggregation that I used of a bunch of European countries, I didn't collect data on in the year 2000. So it, it's hard for me to construct something that's even closely approximates what in that original table would be Western Europe. I'll come back to that in a minute. Now this table is a little bit more complicated to read, but it's not very hard. Uh, the McWage ratio here is nothing to do with the US. <clears throat> it's the wage 
the wage in 2007 compared to 2000. So it tells you about nominal wage increases. U.S. 13% increase. Canada, 51%. Russia, phenomenal wage increase. Four and a half times. China, 90% wage increase. India, 57%. Japan, 5% decline. Uh, UK, 51% increase. Uh, what I've done in the second one is to compare the wage increase in the country in question to the U.S. And you can see that except for Japan, everybody had higher nominal wage increases than the U.S. And then I've put uh, the Big Mac price ratio, which is what you need to compare in the third column with the first. Because, of course, nominal wages did go up by 13% in the U.S., but the Big Mac price went up by 21%. So the Big Mac per hour ratio actually went down by 7% in that period. Same thing for Canada. Phenomenal increase for Russia. As many of you probably are aware, uh, this is a very poor time to use for this because the Russians had just gone through their gigantic financial crisis. This undoubtedly represents, in part, a recovery back to something like normal. Uh, but take a look at China and India. <clears throat> These are fascinating. That's a 60% increase, during which time the UK has a 16% increase, uh, and the Indians have a 53% increase. Now, I, I mention this because there's there have always been questions about Chinese GDP figures. I mean, I have friends who believe that no communist country ever has produced GDP figures anybody should ever even look at. So you can argue about that. Is that true or not true? I don't know. People use them all the time. But it's pretty clear. This, this is about a 9% per hour increase in real wages per year. It's a phenomenal increase. It's industrial revolution level. Uh, India is a little lower, about 8% during this period. Japan, totally stagnant. U.S. and Canada declined. Russia, a huge increase. UK up a little bit, but I imagine the minimum wage has something to do with that. So we should, we should maybe leave that alone for a moment. But anyway, it's a bonus slide because that won't be in the paper, actually. Uh, <clears throat> here are some pictures. This is the percentage growth in uh, the McWage in these various countries. You can see Russia, this gigantic increase. China, India, uh, pretty large. Uh, and Japan, uh, negative. Uh, and there's the percentage increase in Big Mac prices, which you can see again mirrors the, what I just told you. There's increases in China and Russia, but of course they're not as big as the nominal wage increases. And so those are the real, these are the real wage increases measured in these Big Mac prices. The, the attraction of doing this, I mean, I can, you know, if you like, you can see where the problem is. If you look at that, that's supposed to be, if there were no inflation in the world, a measure of what happened to productivity growth in the country. But no one really believes that's true because there are price changes that are going on. And the difficulty is how do we deflate for them? Well, there are different ways to do it. It's some kind of international price index. One way to do it is with the Big Mac price. And doing that, you get that number right there. So we're just about, I'm a little bit over, but we're almost done. Uh, now we have the financial crisis. Now we're back. Europe comes back to life, as does the UK. Uh, this is bad news all around. Uh, yes, if you look at the first column, uh, everywhere except the UK, there's been increases in wages. Uh, Big Mac prices have gone up everywhere. Uh, Big Macs per hour have generally not gone up anywhere, uh, with a couple of exceptions, and the exceptions are China and Russia. China at a slower rate, 6% a year instead of 9, but still growing. All the other countries are either zip or declining. So this has been a period when it looks as if wages are growing, but it's pretty clear if you use this kind of a price index, they aren't. Uh, 
is this the price index to really use? I don't know. Uh, I know that it, it, I have everybody, funny when I first gave this talk, one of my colleagues said, you know, I don't know, maybe it is the one to use. Uh, in the U.S., for example, 45% of our price index is all imputed. We don't actually measure any prices for most of it. All housing is done by imputed rents. There's no one actually collecting any data on prices except on the rents, and nobody lives in rental-occupied housing, but we, that's how we impute the price. So I, I don't know, I'm not a, not, a, not a person who wants to defend this as being correct, but I think it's almost certainly the case that real wages have stagnated in most of the world uh, during the last uh, four years. And there are just a couple of exceptions, and they're the ones everybody sort of knows about, uh, Russia and China. Uh, there's a picture. <clears throat> These are percentage growth in wages over this period. Uh, there's the percentage uh, growth in prices, and there's the percentage growth in, in Big Macs per hour, and you can see basically most places are, are at zero. So that's as much as I really have to say. Uh, there's a, a couple messages I hope you'll take away. One, uh, it's not so difficult to do credible measurement of things people think is difficult. It doesn't require a gigantic organization. Uh, it, it, obviously, uh, there are some disadvantages of the method I've used. One is uh, minimum wages distort wage structures, especially in the developed countries, so that causes problems. Secondly, a problem I have not yet had to encounter at any great length, but I'm, I'm concerned about it as I talk about it, uh, which is whenever you use one very narrow price or wage, there is always a temptation if somebody thinks that you're focusing on that to try to manipulate it. And I've already had one reaction about South America. Some of you may know about Argentina. This was actually in the New York Times recently. Uh, they're, they're, the Argentinians uh, have price inflation, and they don't like it, and they don't want foreigners to think there is any. And they're aware that The Economist publishes a Big Mac price index. So apparently, uh, this journalist showed up at a McDonald's intending to get a Big Mac, and he couldn't find the price of the Big Mac anywhere. It wasn't on the menu could get a double burger with cheese and something else, but he couldn't get a Big Mac. And, and then he, went, he went, went finally toward the toilet, and there on the side, in a very tiny little sign, was the price of a Big Mac. It turns out, apparently, the Argentinian government has been controlling the price. And of course, by controlling the price, that means that no one in the store wants to sell you one. They're trying to sell as few as possible. And that's probably a direct result of this concern about the index being used uh, by foreigners to judge what's going on in Argentina without actually being there and having a, a, a government measure that anybody else would actually believe in. So I, I mention that because that's a disadvantage of the approach I've taken. Uh, I've taken a measure already to try to collect, uh, you can see the attraction here, if you can find an international diversified enterprise that operates the same way everywhere, and if you can get data on it, that's the other problem, then there are other potentially enterprises you could study. And I have one or two up my sleeve, so to speak, that I'm not going to talk about so that I'll be able to have them as something alternative. So that's the one message, which is you have to be careful. Uh, and the second message is, I really hope, we, we, we're observing a very special time in, US, in the world history. It's a special time because it looks like some countries that have not gone through the Industrial Revolution are going through it. The last time we went through the Industrial Revolution, very few people documented what went on. We don't really know what happened. We still argue about it in many places. Wouldn't it be good if this time we took the trouble to find out what's going on and to try to organize some method for collecting data on real wage rates that was more universal than what poor Orly Ashenfelder had to do and that could be implemented in the same way as the ICP project 
on purchasing power prices. So that's my that's my mission to the uh, my mission to the gods. Thank you very much. Well, I think now I should. Okay. Now, I, I didn't think there'd be a chair here. <laughs> so, uh, who would like to start off uh, interrogating Ollie? Yes. You, I, I think, uh, convinced me that uh, exchange can't rates hear, can't hear, don't uh, matter very much. Yeah. Uh, I think you convinced me that exchange rates are not all that relevant, with the exception of table three, where I think that they may be an effect if you're converting everything to, into dollars at current exchange rates, that you may be distorting the comparison. I just looked at it, and it, that was a time when I think sterling was uh, strong, which may be the reason why you've got the effect yep. uh, in, in the UK. Yep. So do you have a comment on that? Yeah. That <coughs> that's a brilliant comment, by the way. <coughs> um, absolutely right. Um, you know, it, exchange rates are annoying if you're a labor economist. <laughs> I mean, they really shouldn't move if they don't reflect tradable goods prices. That, that's, I, that's what I want them to do. And you're absolutely right. Everybody, every international economist knows that's not always true. Uh, the big attraction of the Big Max per hour is it's immune to that. Uh, that's one of the, there's no exchange rates involved in that. Each, each thing is measured uh, in the exact same units. Um, so, the, each one has a disadvantage. I'm almost certain that you're correct, that that's why it shows a decline, because it's showing a decline. Really, all it is is an appreciation of the dollar relative to sterling. The, the thing is, it, from the theoretical point of view, if exchange rates were right all the time, then the McWage measured in some price, in some currency, would be a measure of the tradable goods, the, the wage rate that was appropriate, deflated by the tradable goods price. So it, it, here's the problem that, that everybody struggles with, which is that other monetary factors seem to impinge upon doing this. So I completely agree. And therefore, it's worth taking every one of them. It's, it's, you knew enough to realize that the UK had strong sterling at that point. It so it requires a little bit of care when you try to interpret them. The, so the, the, the disadvantage of the Big Macs per hour, of course, it, it, the advantage of it is it, is kind of, it looks a lot like a quasi-tradable price. It looks very much like a purchasing power purity price. The disadvantage of it is it's based on one price, and it would be a lot nicer if we had. It, it, yeah, I get several measurements of it, but it's still based on one unit, one good, and you could easily have a distortion in that. And it could either be a product market or labor market distortion that could make things go wrong. But I agree with you completely. That that's was uh, that's the frustration we dealt with in in, in it was, everything I've dealt with there in changes. It's always the frustration was. How much attention do I pay to exchange rates? There are other ways to do it. I thought about some of them. They all make the whole thing more complicated than I wanted it to be. So just take, take, just be aware, just as you are. Mike, they can't hear you. So did you did you consider using the second most celebrated use of Big Mac prices, i.e., the Economist's purchasing power parity index, to maybe adjust for that um, that factor? My my, my Suspicion. My instinct is that it's not worth the trouble, but it may, at the margin, give you a, you know, a slightly more nuanced understanding of what's what's going on. I, I, there's a whole. What he's talking about is there's a whole literature about. This is a kind of slightly awkward. This work, by the way, for the Economist, because 
Um, they did do a measure of kind of minutes to get a Big Mac uh, for a worker, and uh, I don't. I looked at some of those numbers; they don't match up with mine at all. So I think they're probably going to not pay attention to this if they can help it. Um, but let's talk about the prices. Um, they do have something where someone did a Bolasa Samuelson type thing, uh, and. Uh, I thought about using something like that. Basically, just to summarize the literature, there's like, they claim 20 papers on the Big Mac pricing. The good one is by this, uh, the best one is by Parsley and Way. What they do, it's quite funny to read actually, because they, I don't know if you've read it, maybe you are Mr. Way. No, you couldn't be, maybe Parsley. Uh, they, 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 they work out what fraction of the cost of a Big Mac goes into the various components. That's where I got my so I fit that by regression to 0.6. They get about 50% by direct observation of it as labor costs. Um, and then they, they do a purchasing power price parity, pri purchasing power parity price measurement thing on the components of it. So their conclusion basically is that the, uh, the uh, and others have done things like this, uh, that the, the uh, the non-tradable part, the wage, is the part that doesn't adjust quickly to exchange rate changes, but the, the parts that go into the McDonald's to the burger that, that are tradable do adjust pretty quickly. That's their more or lesser conclusion. Um, and then there are other papers that uh, do something like what you're suggesting, which is if you, if you use the Big Mac price index and then you, what you could do, another way to account for this Bolasa-Samuelson effect is to take out a fixed effect, run a panel data analysis, take out a fixed effect, and then use deviations around that. So I, I could do something like that, but it just, that's not, you know, that doesn't, the, my, I'm the man who's supposed to be credible and transparent. <laughs> and that, and there's not a regression in this paper except that one that has that little curvilinear fit. And that's the exact same regression that's in the Summers and Heston paper. So I felt, okay, if I figured if they could do it, I could do it too. Anyway, those are very good comments. Thank you for, for making them. You know more about this than most people in this room, probably even including me. Thanks very much for such an interesting talk. Um, just to make your life more complicated, I'd also like to threaten your waistline, and that's to mention um, Whoppers and Burger King. In other words, <laughs> competition um, and changes in competition over time is possibly affecting the, the price of a Big Mac. Uh, we, I think there are some things like there, there are two things we'll do when we do more work. Though, by the way, these data will be available. They'll be in the pin world table, actually in due course. Uh, so they will be available for people. There have been, you know, people have used these kind of data to study uh, whether democracy is associated with higher wages and uh, there are a lot of trade models that, that uh, like this well-known Eaton and Cordum calibrated model, it, it pumps out a measure of total factor productivity. This could be used actually to calibrate that kind of model. So there are a lot of things you could do with this. Uh, there are two things though that go to the product and, and labor market. Those are good points. One, one is, <coughs> There's the minimum wage, of course, and that, that we can actually figure out. I mean, we can, we can get, try to get data on it. It's not as simple as you think. In the U.S., it's simple because we have a federal minimum, but it's not so simple because we also have state minimums that are sometimes higher. So it's a, quite an annoying thing when you start to look at how you deal with the wage uh, uh, distortion at the minimum wage level. The product market thing is really interesting. Um, I think there is something to that. I, I mean, generally speaking, people imagine that 
there's free entry by all of these operations into these countries. In which case, you know, you're probably going to be thinking there's competition everywhere. But that's not really true, as you're probably aware. There are licensing arrangements by which some of these, like basically McDonald's got into Russia long before anybody else. Um, one of the, I love looking at the data on China, for example, because it looks just like a real free market operation. <laughs> Even if they are communists, they look like they're really letting it go rampant, you know, and, and that, that makes thinking about markets and measuring prices and wages very nice. But I haven't done much with that. We've thought in our most recent survey, we've actually tried to, um, uh, the company I use, uh, I've done two or three things. One thing is I've started expanding. I, there's another enterprise, one of which is located right around the corner here, uh, that we're collecting data on, a, a new enterprise that operates somewhat like McDonald's does. Another thing we've done is to ask them to, to measure for us how many of the typical McDonald's competitors are in existence in that market. I don't know the answer to that, but I will. So in principle, I could do something like try to estimate uh, uh, try to estimate whether there's an effect on the price of the Big Mac based on competition, holding constant the wage rate, because you would, it, would, it would increase the price, but it wouldn't necessarily affect the wage if there were product market monopoly. So that's something I thought more about doing. I think we'll try to do that. It, it isn't so easy to always find out whether or not all of these companies exist, and you have to think about which ones, which ones are the ones you care about. Um, but yes, that's a good, that's a very good, that's an I.O. type question, which is deserved. The other thing that we haven't done, by the way, is, that I didn't mention this, but if you back out the price of the tradables from that equation I have there, Sad to say, it's not constant. <laughs> Tradable prices look like they're higher in poor countries. Then I'm, one of the points you made at the start becomes very interesting, which is about what actually is McDonald's or what is a Big Mac, and is it selling safety rather than the product? I was thinking of Yum Foods, sort of KFC and um, Pizza Hut in China, which is... I think probably doing better than McDonald's. That say the co competition may be much broader than Burger King. Now that that's a good that's a good interesting, that's an interesting question. I haven't been to China to look at this. My RA came back. She, the way she sees it as people tell me, for example, that when McDonald's first by the way, I should say McDonald's is very successful in China. Let me start with that. They have fifty thousand. They had fifty thousand workers at the end of last year. They expect to have fifty thousand more at the end of this year. And most, most uh, projections have them at probably having more than a million. If, if you can, I mean, it's like it's a huge country. If they keep growing, uh, they, so it's having a million is nothing really. That's quite perfectly sensible. It's enormous places. Uh, I, when we collect data on, on uh, wages and prices by city size, I'm always astonished by what a small city is. I mean, they're not, I mean, we would think three million is a big city. That's a tiny place in China. So they're just enormous places. Uh, my, here's my impression. I think you get, you sort of get a similar kind of a feeling in most of them. They, the way that they pitch it uh, outside the U.S. is sort of the same way as they pitch it inside. It's, it's, it has, it doesn't have so much of a cachet now, but it's, when they first come in, it often has the idea that it's kind of an American thing. You're coming in there, like I, I didn't show you the bill from China. The Chinese bill is in Chinese and English. I don't know which kind of Chinese, whatever they have in Beijing. Uh, 
and so they, they do, there is clearly a uh, rubbing off on the American thing that goes on there. But I think part of what goes with it is, is, is this business of the food safety. Um, you know, there have been one or two tragedies. At one point, you may remember in India, they found out that they were not, that they were actually using, the reason French fries were good at McDonald's is because they use fat. And apparently they were using a mixture of, of uh, pork fat and uh, oil in India, and it was discovered, and it was just a, a fantastic tragedy for McDonald's. They then had to go get a new menu and recipe and blah, 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 and I think they've all come back from that. But um, So it, it, I think the food safety, it's difficult to underestimate that. Let me, let me just say, when I was a kid, <coughs> my mother lived in North Dakota. She's from North Dakota. So she, during the Depression, moved to California and married my father, and I was more or less conceived the day after Pearl Harbor uh, was bombed. Uh, you know, ten months later, out I popped. Uh, and as, after the war, my mother decided that we had to move back to North Dakota. I don't know if you've ever heard of North Dakota. It only has about 600,000 people. It's in the absolute middle of nowhere. And you have to drive up through the Midwest, what we call Midwest. Uh, and I'll never forget, the first night we stopped in some place like Yuma, Arizona. And we went into a diner, and we came out, and three hours later, we were just sick as dogs. We were just totally sick. And after that, my mother gave me a lecture. She said, you know, Orly, we're going to drive across all the way to North Dakota. We're not going to eat anywhere except McDonald's from now on. Just get used to it. <laughs> so I got used to McDonald's at a very early age. In those days, the Big Mac wasn't such a big deal. You could get a burger for 20 cents. That was funny for me. But the food safety thing, it, it was, you know, it's, it, 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 for travelers in particular, for travelers, it was always a very, very important issue. Uh, and I think that that, and that's why I think that, you know, sitting in Oak Park, Illinois, or Oak Brook, whichever it is, I, I think that they see, they know exactly what's happening. Every country's going to go through this stage. They're going to they're go through just what the U.S. went through, you know, if they keep growing, they're going to go through what the U.S. went through, and then they're going to ride that horse. That's the plan. Too bad we don't own stock 10 years ago. <laughs> It's danger we're going to sound as though we're sniping at your data, which I'm sure we're not. But I notice in developed markets there's a big difference between the wages um, in coffee bars and so on. Um, um, in, in London, for example, if you want to work part-time in some coffee bars, the wages can be enormously different. So there are distortions because you need to attract the right side of labor. And presumably there are distortions in the third world as well where maybe it's difficult for cultural reasons to get the right type of people, so you need to pay higher wages to get the right type of people to meet the Ray Kroc standard. So again, possibly a distortion in terms of input costs. So that, now that was brought up uh, a number of years ago. Several people have mentioned it. It, 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 it. What that suggests is that the wage rate you see is higher than would otherwise be the case. So to the extent that you're shocked that the wage rates are low, that this is, says they're even lower, really, if you were to use a comparable base. Um, I don't really have any response to that except anecdotes. You know, I, uh, my, my Chinese research assistant came back from Beijing, and she said, you know, it's basically, it's kids working in, in McDonald's, just like it is everywhere else, younger people. Either younger people or older people who, who have uh, maybe retired or have, don't have the skills to get by otherwise. But uh, I don't really have a good answer to that. It, it's, uh, 
it's a, uh, it could explain, for example, why uh, you see, uh, I guess it wouldn't though, if you look at the to total factor productivity thing, what, what the difference between the measurement based on output and the measurement based on McWage shows is in the poor countries, the TFP looks bigger than it does with the McWage. And uh, that actually suggests more or less the reverse because what it says is you're dividing by a, a, a smaller human capital index than you should and they actually have more human capital. So that would kind of go against what you're suggesting, but I, I really have nothing other than anecdotal information on that. Anyway, I was in India, and you know, when I went in, it was looked like kids working there, just like everywhere else. Uh, last question. I have two questions, well one question and one comment. Um, first question is, do payroll taxes, employers' payroll taxes have any impact on that? I mean, uh, you know, Notorious places like France have such taxes. I, I don't know how that fake factors in. And the second one, I just noticed on the chart was the Middle East versus Russia, where two oil uh, exporting regions, where the Russians. I know there's a base effect from the financial crisis. They seem the Russian Big Mac employees, Russian McDonald's employees, seem to have done quite well, um, whereas the Middle East haven't. Is there something data issue in that, or is that? Uh, the good reason why they're having revolutions in the That's Middle East. That's a very good question. Let's come back to that. Um, you know, maybe. <laughs> I don't want to get into Golden Archer's theory of conflict. Uh, the, that is a very interesting. We, we, I tried, when I first started, I really wanted to collect data in uh, some Muslim countries. But I really, it's easy to collect. Indonesia is straightforward, and that's a Muslim country. Uh, I wanted to collect data in the Middle East. It is really pretty difficult to do. Um, Egypt, you can sort of do. I don't know what's happened in Egypt, actually, uh, in, in the more recent period. Um, but most of the, uh, Pakistan is easy, too. Pakistan is very easy. In fact, if I, one of the most interesting comparisons is between Pakistan and India. And Pakistan is much lower than India. Uh, you know, they, I would think, they ought, to, they ought to think about, you know, do like the other guy does, whatever he's doing. Um, the but the other countries that I was interested in, uh, Saudi Arabia, Dubai, et cetera, these are really difficult to interpret, even though we have collected some data from them. They're difficult because they usually bring all the workers in from outside. They put them up in dormitories and the like, and they, and they uh, pay them on a monthly basis. So it's extremely, I would say that they, they have McDonald's, but in a way, they're a little bit like the poor African countries that don't have it. There's a, there's a certain, what people don't appreciate is, until you reach a certain level, you can't actually have a McDonald's. You have to be able to support the price of something that requires, in a very poor country, power generation and water filtration. Because you have to really bring, you, we take this all for granted in London, you can, whether you like it or not, you can drink the water, and electricity doesn't go off at six o'clock. But in most countries, you can't take that for granted. So McDonald's has to cope with that, and they have to be up to the point where they can charge enough that they can cover those costs that they would normally not have to cover in a place like uh, Western Europe. So the, I've tried to collect that. I think the reality is that you just have to take data from places like that with a grain of salt. Uh, you just have to say, well, it would be nice if things were more wage rate oriented and price oriented and you could collect the data, but I don't think you can. Now, the other question you asked is a very good one on payroll taxes. We don't try to do anything about that. 
uh, and it's obviously, and, and incidentally, where there are high payroll taxes, there also tend to be very large safety net arrangements. So there's a kind of a sense in which I'm torn about that. Uh, the comparison with the developed countries is harder. In the less developed countries, typically there's not much of a safety net anyway. So it's less concern and low taxes as well. Uh, but it is something. The other thing I haven't done, incidentally, which I would like to do, is to get data on hours. I don't have any information on how long people actually work. Uh, so those are all very, very, that's a very good question. But I think probably should just don't treat the Middle Eastern data that I have, don't take it too seriously. Oli, thank you so much. Um, I, 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 I remember that um, in the 1930s there was a big argument um, between Beveridge and Lionel Robbins here about uh, whether economics should be an inductive uh, subject based on evidence or whether it should be a deductive subject based on theory. Um, and Beveridge was very, very strong on collection of data. In fact, he spent most of his, I think, nearly 20 years as director of LSE collecting price data. That was his, his, his passion. Uh, all his collected wage data as well. And, uh, <laughs> great, great, wonderful performance in, in a great tradition, and thank you so much.